This is Thinking Drinking, a podcast about drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Leary. What are you drinking and thinking about today? You hear me coming. <laughs> uh, I am drinking a pink gin with a pink tonic with pink berries and a pink glass with some titties on it. <laughs> Which is highly appropriate, I'm assuming, for the theme. It is. I would like to speak about mummy juice. Oh my god, mummy juice. I am <laughs> very much drinking mummy mummy juice. It's so hard to even get those words out. It's so disgusting. Yes, I'm drinking uh, rosé, a rosé wine called Windband, um, which is made by a woman... I'm not sure whether she's a mummy, but she's a woman uh, from Cecilia Wines, which is a South African rosé. And uh, part of the profits go to community music programmes. So doing all kinds of good stuff. Well done, them. Primarily, which is putting nice wine into my mouth. <laughs> um, mummy juice. Now, I've seen so many of these, like, paraphernalia, like, glasses and wines and aprons and posters and things that are all about mummies drinking wine because they're stressed and Mm -hmm. um get some of tits (laughs) yeah mummy needs her wine mummy drinks because of you etc 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 yeah so i thought i bet we can get an episode out of this (laughs) yeah which is that's a lot Doing a bit of whinging and then trying to redress the balance in some way, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So, mummy juice, as a phrase, um, I, I have seen about, but it's actually a brand as well. There is a wine called Mummy Juice Wines. Yeah. I read an article uh, on a site called The Cut, which is where um, the founder of Mummy Juice Wines is telling me all about it. And it was it was a tough read, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> so she says, in the wine industry, everyone has a glass of wine with dinner every night. Uh, my son, when he was just around two, would say, that's mommy's juice, and point to my wine glass. Then my friends and I started using it, saying things like, oh my gosh, I need a glass of mommy juice. And um, she said once her daughter picked up the cutesy term too, they brainstormed a label concept and created Mommy Juice Wines, uh, which is Californian. And it's dedicated to mothers who enjoy a glass or two at the end of a particularly stressful day. Um, It's $10 and it has a motto on it that says, put your kids to bed and have a glass of Mommy Juice. It comes in Mommy Juice Red and White or pool party pink <laughs> she said she did her research on facebook and found groups <laughs> i need like that bit <laughs> found groups called omg i need a glass of wine or i'm going to kill my kids or mums who need wine that had over half a million members and so that's what inspired it um 
She says, uh, women will say, you know what? I'm not perfect. Sometimes I need something to help me relax because my kids drove me nuts for the whole day. I'll have a glass of wine and that's okay. So that's the um, that's the inspiring feminist message we're beginning the episode yeah. with. She's doing God's work, isn't she? I'm very aware that <laughs> I am a childless man. <laughs> and to come straight in with... <laughs> this is disgusting. <laughs> is, you know, potentially it's, um, it's a bit... Uh, uh, troubling in terms of sexism but I am really of the thought that there is far too much of this particular uh, marketing sphere and stereotype of mums drinking wine around for it to be healthy so I wanted to see yeah. how many examples of that there were out there what, what are your biases straight up about this kind of thing um so first thing I must feel like I need to say is that there is absolutely no judgment against mum's drinking. Mm. <laughs> completely, um, completely. Because I think a, a lot of it came up in my like in my research was um, yeah there were kind of two sides to the argument. There were people like you know arguing at how much alcohol marketing there was triggered towards women who have children and new mums and mummy wine, mummy juice. But then there was also a lot of people on the other side of the fence just saying you know well, why shouldn't it be marketing? Why shouldn't we be drinking? So they're defending it. And I think they shouldn't need to defend it. Like, everyone is probably, like, I know not everyone drinks. There's people out there who don't drink, but they're probably not listening to a podcast about drinking. So I think I'm fair to say that the majority of us um, are kind of guilty of kind of rewarding ourselves to a glass of wine or a glass of gin or beer at, like, the end of a working week or... You know, mm-hmm. you, you do. You think, oh, God, this is a well-deserved drink. Um, so, yeah, I don't have any judgment um, for it. So I'm going to say that straight up. Um, I think it goes beyond the realm of mummies. Um, I know that there's a lot of kind of advertising and a lot of kind of bandwagon jumping from companies on things like Mother's Day and International Women's Day and all kinds of different days and holidays where it's just a complete vehicle for alcohol companies to just peddle their wares. Um, so that's been quite interesting to look into. Um, and yeah, that's what I, I looked into quite a lot of that as well because I felt like I wasn't the target audience for Mummy Juice. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Do you know what? I've got a couple more examples of similar things that I, I want to offer before we get into, I think, where this has come from. Um mm-hmm. So there's another one called Mommy's Time Out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And very similar lines. It's um, two women wearing um, prim hats. Two white women, I should say. That is relevant. Um, and it, on the, it says, how much do you spend on a bottle of wine? And the other one says, I would guess about half an hour. That's <laughs> Mommy's Time Out. And then... Uh, individually funny like if you just saw one of these and none of the others existed you'd be like that's quite funny Um, another one is mommy's little helper Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, oh actually no that was the that was the six pack promotion for mother's day mommy's little helper that was done by mad housewife which is another brand Mm -hmm. of wine and uh, on it it's got another white woman wearing pearls You'll see this pattern. Um, And on it, it says, the most expensive part of having kids is all the wine you have to drink. 
So that's mm-hmm. Mad Housewife. Um, well, funny you mentioned Mummy's Little Helper because when I was reading into all of this, um, they are kind of dubbing this new mummy juice trend as a kind of parallel to Valium use by housewives in the kind of 50s. And apparently that that's what Valium was known as, was Mother's Little Helper. Yeah. You had your mother's ruin, which was gin, and then mother's little helper, which was Valium. And now you've got rosé and pink gin. <laughs> exactly. And actually, after... if you, you can go back even further to things like cocaine before Valium, mm. you know, when, when that was uh, normal around 1900. After Valium, you've got... Um, well, in the 60s, you've got uh, the smoking campaigns. So mm-hmm. it, there was a lot of sexualizing of women in marketing campaign i mean there always has been it's not like it's gone away but <laughs> you know sort of that was the almost the only approach in the uh, 40s and 50s and then the tobacco industry in the 60s decided to tag onto some of the women's movements and so they developed the slogan you've come a long way baby which people might recognise but not necessarily uh, know that it came out of the Virginia Slims cigarette campaign, which was cashing in on the women's lib movement, trying to attract those uh, those female consumers. Um, so that was kind of like one way that marketers started to shift away from purely sexualizing into doing things around empowerment. And what we see, what we then saw in, for example, alcohol marketing to women in the 90s, it hitched onto girl power. And it was all about spending time with your friends and you don't need no man. <laughs> and it was all about kind of being around other women and empowering and having a good time. Mommy's kind of stress reliever is like a little offshoot of that, but it's a club that's just for certain types of women who have had children. Um, but in general, the kind of marketing that goes towards women in terms of things like um, alcohol is now all around empowerment. Of course, it's not really empowering. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's selling itself as that. It's not, what does it actually do to empower you as a woman? There was um, a campaign for International Women's Day um, where a thousand bottles of wine were sold for a penny a piece. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like, is, is that what we want for women today? Um, and also Bacardi uh, did one as well, where they launched a reduced alcohol vodka that was flavoured with peach or lemon or cucumber, and they called it a spa day spritz. Well, I'd actually like to talk about um, this whole kind of International Women's Day empowerment stuff because mm-hmm. that was one thing that just kept coming up when I was looking into it um, and some other examples that I found so Johnny Walker whiskey um, to celebrate Women's History Month and International Women's Day they kind of rebranded their whiskey as Jane Walker and they changed the logo of the little Johnny Walker guy walking into a kind of powerful looking woman striding um, and they were also donating proceeds towards, you know, worthy causes. Um, but it was just the way in which that they spoke about it and some of the marketing, it just didn't quite hit the nail. It, you know, they were saying things like, you know, we want to celebrate women who drink like men. Mm. So there was still that kind of like inequality there. Um, and another example was um, Brewdog. Um, so they... 
in 2018 they launched at their pink IPA and I to be honest I think they did it well but again I think I'm probably jaded because I work in marketing <laughs> and I think oh yeah fair play they've done that quite well but they launched a pink IPA which looked almost identical to their punk IPA and they they actually said it's this exactly the same in the bottle it's the same as the punk IPA but we're launching it as the pink IPA so it was same branding but all in pink um, and they were dubbing it as beer for girls and they were doing it kind of deliberately to get people's backs up and to get people to notice it because they were doing it to um, raise awareness of the gender pay gap mm-hmm. and so what they were doing was um, they'd said anyone that identifies as female can come into any brew dog and pick up um, a pink IPA for 20% less than punk IPA um, and that's what they were doing um, but they were still facing backlash because it was that same year um there was a big campaign launched uh, by, I think it's like an um, alcohol awareness charity in Scotland. Um, they'd launched this massive campaign called Don't Pink My Drink. Mm-hmm. And it was basically a way to identify and expose examples of this shameless kind of marketing towards women, you know, and they were calling it pink washing. So many of these alcohol companies are just pink washing just to get, you know, women's. Um, women buying their products and yeah they were given to charities yes they were raising awareness but at the end of the day they were just promoting their products and using these kind of campaigns and holidays as a way to just sell more beer and sell more booze Um, so yeah there's a huge movement that don't pink my drink hashtag although it started in 2018 it's still going Mm -hmm. if you look on um, Twitter there's just constantly people calling out companies um, and as a result of that, Brewdog kind of did have to go back on their word a little bit. And they they eventually said that they had some regrets around it, which is interesting. It's an interesting case, the Brewdog one, because um, mm-hmm. a few years before their ladies' beer came out, there was another one called Chick Beer, um, mm-hmm. which is no longer with us, uh, thank goodness, uh, which was not ironic um, it was a beer marketing mm-hmm. to ladies. It, you know, it was pink in, in its colour. <laughs> the logo was a little black dress. It was low carb. Um, and the six pack you could get looked like a purse. <laughs> in some ways, I quite enjoyed the design if it was to be carried by a drag queen, right? <laughs> but an actual purse woman. <laughs> yeah, purse first. An actual woman, maybe not so much. Um, it was this, mm-hmm. you know, premium light lager. Um, it was less carbonated as well, so for that less bloaty feeling. They actually mm-hmm. did say they were giving five. I mean, they did give five percent of the profits to charities that empower women. But the problem mm-hmm. is, you've already perpetuated that stereotype. And I think, and that happened. I think about fifteen years or so before um, Brewdog's attempt, and they they didn't learn from that because no matter what your intention is and how ironic you think it is. The perception is always out there, which is open to interpretation. And you are still perpetuating the stereotype because the humour only works if you understand the stereotype. So you're still Mm -hmm. reinforcing it. And the case with that one was interesting because, yeah, they although they did the 20% reduction to mirror um, uh, the, the pay gap for women, at the time, they also had a gender pay gap in their own company which they hadn't sort of addressed with it. it. To be fair to them, 
it wasn't as big as you know the national average it was like two or three percent and they have since sorted mm-hmm. it out but that was kind of you know one markdown then it went to court <laughs> so a a guy in cardiff um decided that he wanted to pay the lower price and the bar staff were like well no you can't and he said well i identify as a woman then and um he he took it to court and said this is a case of discrimination and brew dog were like well no it isn't it was a, you know it was a campaign we were making a point anyway it went to court and the guy who took Brewdog to court did say, I will drop this case if you apologise. And they didn't. Brewdog got fined £1,000 and were found guilty of discrimination. Um, mm. And the guy who won that case, um, after paying his court fees, donated the rest to charities. He donated uh, one to a women's charity that I've forgotten the name of, and then the other was uh, to Calm for uh, mental health. It's a tricky one to figure out that because I I think you can disagree with marketing methods and go well I, you know I don't I don't think that was pitched in the right way because it was too ironic and you know you're not making your point clear but to actually go no you are discriminating against me make a point about how you've had to lie about your gender even though you don't in your in your day i think that kind of glosses over some of the other more complicated gender issues we have in the country particularly around being trans and stuff like that um Mm -hmm. i think it was sort of a a bit of a disingenuous case uh, to then use the equalities act of 2010 to go against it but it just goes to show like how complicated something like this is like discrimination is wrong so you can't charge Mm -hmm. different prices based on based on sex um you know stereotypes are perpetuated even if you think it's ironic uh it's it's a difficult case to take forward that also happened just shortly before the uk brought in marketing rules in 2019 about stereotypes and marketing so Mm -hmm. it is now against the advertising standards agencies to have stereotypes in your marketing campaigns the Mm -hmm. the first two companies that fell foul of that were actually volkswagen and philadelphia um, for Philadelphia, why are they even bothering with stereotypes? Yeah, it was uh, Philadelphia was um, inept dads. Inept dads seems to fall foul of the gender stereotyping most of all in marketing. I have found it was men who'd like mm. left their babies on um, a supermarket checkout and forgotten about them or something. But yeah, God. Um. So I think the lesson is if you want to support a cause even if you are donating your profits to good causes i think try and do it without representing <laughs> a stereotype because you're not doing yourself yeah. any favors and certainly don't charge people different prices based on um, your perception of them <laughs> <laughs> i um i found a festival uh in toronto a very mummy wine festival mm-hmm and it was a daytime gathering for mums to get together and sip some mummy juice, judgment free. And the tagline was "Babes on the hips, wine on the lips." <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, so, as you can imagine, they faced some backlash mm-hmm. for that. Yeah. Um, but when questioned, the organizer sounded a bit sassy. She's like, "Well, I didn't really consider the wider impacts of the alcohol marketing, but we tried mummies that like to drink tea, and nobody came." 
<laughs> right. So there we are. <laughs> know your audience, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Quite so. Um, I mentioned I should pick this up because I said it was relevant that all the images of the women were white when we look at all the mummy juice campaigns, the various campaigns. Um, and that's because they are the target demographic and they are drinking a lot more than non-white people. They are, I think, more than more than twice as likely to be binge drinkers than any other ethnicity. It's become kind mm-hmm. of a bit of an epidemic for white women. And, you know, what's difficult is that in, in amongst all the empowerment messages and as much as um, equality, you know, can and should exist in all sorts of forms, what's often ignored is that biologically women have a harder time coping with alcohol you know whether it's like um actually uh, metabolizing it or it kind of being stored in the body for various reasons is a bit more difficult and um since the 90s that seems to have kind of gone by the wayside a lot Mm -hmm. with with the empowerment movements and uh, certainly white women are finding much higher rates of alcohol related problems and diseases uh in this millennium than any other demographic Um, and on that note, the movie Trainwreck, starring Amy Schumer. <laughs> okay. So there's a scene in it where she gets a box of wine and, uh, mm-hmm. in your words, chins it. <laughs> wow. An entire box. Yeah. Uh, which is, which is a real wine. Like they, if for a film, they could have made up a fake brand, I feel, but you know, they used a real one, uh, Trinchero Family Estates. They were like great free advertising let's promote it on social media and then lots of young women responded by posting photos of themselves chugging this this box of uh, bandit wine they said that the sales <laughs> of their box wine uh which were called binge in a box jumped 22 percent wow 22 <laughs> percent for that film which is like wow um about like gendered gendered advertising is complicated i think in just in terms of how it actually works whether it works or not because there were studies particularly into things around personal care products and health products that if they are targeted to women specifically women will pay 13 percent more for them than if they're the same goods but branded for men so women spend more on their products generally anyway um but it doesn't always ring, but that doesn't like necessarily ring true that they will always kind of go for the things that are branded for women. So they, they did this, um, they did this test during the 2016 US election campaign where they asked, uh, you know, around Hillary Clinton because she was running and they had these different um, uh, campaign mementos. You could either have a cheap sticker or like a sturdy button and they had different slogans on. <laughs> When both items had the um, Hillary is the candidate for America slogan on, people chose the button. They chose the higher quality one, right? Because they had more value. Mm-hmm. Then in the second group, they um, had the slogan candidate for women on the button rather than the cheap sticker. And more women um, chose the cheaper one. They were like, no, we want candidate for America, not candidate for women. So putting yourself forward as a representative for women means women won't choose you. 
<laughs> is essentially what that meant. There's another example as well where um, they asked people to choose a calculator. It was either green or purple uh, to use it to complete a maths problem. And in one group, it was just green and purple calculators. In another group, they labeled the purple calculators as four men uh, for male participants and four women for females. And then mm-hmm. among the female participants, 51% chose the purple calculator when it had no gender labels. So pretty even, 50-50. But when it was labeled for women, the purple calculator, only 24% chose it. So they were, again, so stubborn, aren't we? rejecting the idea that it was for <laughs> women. But here's another kind of interesting thing that it wasn't in that, um, wasn't in that test. But I know her from another test, which would kind of go hand in hand with this. It's which is when women are performing maths tests, if they're reminded that they're women and women do worse in maths, they will do worse in it. Like all the biases that exist, even if it's being this is why irony is so difficult to cope with. Even if you're saying ironically, oh, women supposedly do worse in maths tests, but we're going to show them all wrong, aren't we? Like it's not true, really you will still do worse in the maths test because you've been reminded of that stereotype. <laughs> Stereotypes actually affect your behaviour. They make a difference. So well, yeah, I mean, you, you've, you've seen me do it uh, in, a, in a work situation where I was told that I was in a minority group as mm-hmm. I was a, a female working in the role that I was in. And I was like, I was really offended by it. I'd never really thought about it. And I was very stubborn then that I didn't want to to kind of help them in their kind of what they were doing I was like no no I'm not, I'm not having any part of this <laughs> yeah. whereas anything else I'm such a nice person normally anything else especially when it's kind of uh, you know it, it's a kind of goodwill project or it's a voluntary thing I will always help but the fact that I'd been told you're a minority as you know just because of my gender I was like fuck mm-hmm. you no I'm not helping you do that that's awful yeah <laughs> What I have found in my explorations of bias and stereotypes and so forth over the years um, and in my career dealing with this sort of stuff is that references to gender in any form, whether it's meant to be a stereotype, ironic, empowering, discriminatory, it almost never works. It's almost never a good thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just, you know, doing away with it is probably the only logical course, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) let's just forget about it um i was also going to mention while i was talking about kind of uk laws on stereotyping and um discrimination and stuff that recently uh the the tax on alcohol has come to light some people are saying that it is sexist and that's because wine is being taxed um twice as much it's rising twice as fast since 2010 as the tax on beer so mm-hmm. 43% of female drinkers say that wine is their preferred alcoholic beverage and 7% of women say that it's beer male respondents 44% say that beer is their favorite drink and 21% said that it's wine so the conclusion that they come to from that survey is that the tax on drinks is sexist because they tax much higher the drink that women prefer more women prefer hmm. i'd want to I'd, I'd argue the data there <laughs> who were they asking and 
It was a it, it was a YouGov survey, so they they do kind ah, of right. look across their demographics, hmm. and it is true like that that is their approach to taxation. But you, what you have to ask is like what was I don't know what the decision was why certain things are taxed higher than others anyway. Like I haven't mm-hmm. got a clue what that is. I suspect part of that might be that when you tax beer more heavily fewer people go to the pub and that means that you're not supporting a more local economy and sort of the spill-off spend you get from going to the pub whereas wine I think is mostly bought in supermarkets and taken home so I think the logic would be that um, we feel we can kind of tax luxury goods in the supermarkets higher than we can things that we would want to consume in social areas that have a then a broader economic impact i think yeah but i don't sense. know so don't call yeah. me sexist <laughs> <laughs> um i thought it would be a good we should remind ourselves that this kind of gendered approach to alcohol drinking criticism is nothing new because as we mentioned in one of our very early episodes gin was uh, at one point known as mother's ruin Mm-hmm. You remember that one? Yeah. And, you know, really just, you know, in a nutshell, as I said, there was a big gin craze in in the UK, particularly in London. And the backlash of that was that the government decided to legislate against it and say, you can't just be producing your own substandard gins. It has to be kind of, well, taxed, legislated, all that kind of business. And the propaganda that went along with it was saying people were committing more crimes and losing their minds. They were drunk all the time. In particular, women were neglecting their duties as mothers. They were ignoring their babies. They weren't having babies. The birth rate dropped uh, dramatically. And... So they labelled it as mother's ruin. We could say even with all the potential negative social impacts drunkenness amongst the populace could have had, the one that stuck, the one that became most popular was women aren't doing their duties as mothers. There's no reason why it affected mothers more than anyone else, but that's the one they picked up. And I think what's very notable about that is that label is given by the upper class men. Like that, those are the ones who chose how they were going to legislate and what they were going to call it. What we don't hear are the stories of the working class women who were able to earn more money and gain independence because they could brew gin and sell it for themselves. Like, you know, women, (laughs) independent women were actually making a good living from selling gin and then all of a sudden they weren't allowed to be. So who really got ruined through that process, I would ask, and why? (laughs) But Mother's Ruin is now a gin maker in Walthamstow. FYI. Yeah, I, I thought <laughs> I was going to say, I thought it was like a, a brand now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She says as she sips her <laughs> Any more to chat about on uh, sort of marketing before I go on to um, better people? Um, well, yes and no. Um, I found something on my research travels. It's It was just something that I found. Um I didn't quite know where it would go. <laughs> I thought there's definitely not a, an entire podcast to be had out of this, <laughs> but I feel like if it's going to go anywhere, it's going to go in here. So I apologize in advance. Have you heard of, um, it's a beer called Bottled Instinct? No. So Bottled Instinct is a beer 
from a brewery in Poland, and it is the world's first vagina beer made with bacterial bacteria. Bacterial? Bad- <laughs> bacterial bacteria. bacteria. I'm, I'm, I'm so, honestly, I'm, I'm so freaked out by it, I can't even say it. <laughs> Vaginal bacteria. Sure. So, yeah. Well, you remember, like, I think it was last episode when we were talking about barrels, and I said, I, actually, do you know what, I might have cut this from the episode, but I said uh, <laughs> a couple, a couple of episodes ago, when I said that lactobacillus is most common uh, in the vagina on the human body. Well, somebody had obviously been reading into that a bit too much and <laughs> they thought, yeah, let's make a, a beer. Right. So they claim it's a tribute to their mothers and to the act of childbirth. But I read into it and it's clearly just really just sleazy. It's gross. Um, so from what I can gather, they had a crowdfunding uh page for this beer that they wanted to create Mm -hmm. um they were aiming to raise something like 150,000 and (laughs) they raised 1,348 pounds they had 59 backers um but it's just it's to be fair that the the imagery and the (laughs) the marketing is very sexist it's like a woman in tiny underwear and heels in black and white um, and they're just claiming that uh, you can essentially bottle the woman of your dreams. So to me, it feels like it's kind of heavily advertised towards men. Um, so they, I'll just read what it says because I can't really put it into words. <laughs> um, they've written, imagine a woman of your dreams, your object of desire, her charm, her sensuality, her passion. Try her taste, feel her smell, hear her voice. Imagine her massaging you passionately and whispering into your ear everything you want. Now free your fantasies and imagine that with a magic wand. You can close it in one bottle of beer. So they claim that they've prepared technology making creation of such unique beer possible. Um, they did go into... Yeah, here we go. Uh, the secret of the beer lies in her vagina. Using high-tech microbiology, we isolate, examine, and prepare lactic acid bacteria from the vagina of a unique woman. The bacteria transfers the woman's features, allure, grace, glamour, and her instincts into beer and other products, turning them into a dance with a lovely angel. <laughs> um, so this this marks out their kind of goals. Um, I won't read all of that, but I read that and thought, yeah, these crazy bastards basically just want to make some beer out of some bacteria from someone's vagina and they didn't get their backing but they did it i don't know how i couldn't find where they got the funding from but um i found an article from 2016 that claimed that yeah they they did it um bottled instinct the beer was made using the bacteria from uh, a czech model called alexandra brendlova couldn't really find much more than that. I went on a few websites, um, beer reviewing websites, um, Untapped being one of them. If you type in um, Bottled Instinct into Untapped, there are three beers on there from three different women. So three women have kind of offered up their bacteria for them to make their beer. Uh, so that yeah, that's the thing. 
you you can buy that beer. Well, they've they've <laughs> leaned very heavily into the uh, I dream of genie mythology there, haven't they? Have have a woman trapped mm. in a bottle for you. Um, I suppose the question on everyone's mind right now is, um, would you donate your vagina to beer? Um, I would probably get the beer made, but I would do it just to freak someone out or gross someone out. I, I'd me. do it for you husband, <laughs> yeah. You, you'd send it to me, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, and I'd tell you afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a violation. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably get arrested. <laughs> wow. Thanks. So yeah, vagina beer was a. I feel like um, an unwelcome discovery on that bit of research. I feel like our friend Zaley would definitely volunteer for that. She is always banging on about how she's got a perfect vagina. I feel like she would be very <laughs> flattered oh. by her own range of vagina beers. Yeah, shout out to Zaley's lovely vagina. Yeah, can we, renownedly can we so, a Zaley very good vagina, vagina apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but does it pass the beer test? all right well thanks i was not expecting that um but you know that's what this podcast is all about (laughs) going going to the places that only drink can take you (laughs) that's our slogan watch this space (laughs) all right can i tell you about some women uh, yes, please. I think we're ready to move on. All right. I'm definitely ready to move on. Uh, I'm going to start off with Barbe Nicole Clicquot. She was the first woman to run a champagne house. Uh, it was in the early 19th century, which, you know, that kind of role at that time was unknown. It was not common. Well, obviously, I've said she's the first one. What I mean was that women didn't generally run businesses. Um she was quite young when she did it as well she was 27 when she took on the family business after her husband had died Francois and I think everyone knows Verve Clicquot it's got to be one of the most famous champagne houses now so that's why she's known as the Grand Dame of Champagne Um, (laughs) (laughs) thank you Um, so she didn't like have any you know formal training or anything like that she was relatively sheltered in terms of uh, you know what she'd been exposed to but then very quickly learned on the job and ended up bringing forth quite a lot of innovations I wonder if that's partly because she wasn't trained in a specific tradition and she was always looking for ways to you know bring something new to it and get ahead and and also probably listening to the experts listening to the workers Um, so they had a a vineyard brilliantly called Boozy (laughs) <laughs> boozy um, and she was the one who produced the industry's first vintage wine which was in 1810 you know vintage doesn't happen every year it's only when you get a really good harvest they got one in 1810 called it the first vintage had another one the next year in 1811 and already she's thinking what can I do to market this one so it's called the year of the comet uh, the year of the comet wine she also created the modern form of pink champagne, where you add a bit of red wine to it. So proper mummy juice. <laughs> <laughs> um, she also, uh, I, I say in collaboration with her workers, developed the riddling rack process for mass production. I don't know if you're familiar with riddling. No. <laughs> Sounds rude. It's not. 
I know, I was, I've have, stopped myself. Though. Have you seen <laughs> uh, videos of when people go into massive cellars and they just do like quarter turns on the bottles all the way along? Yeah. It's so hypnotic to watch because the people who do mm. it are so skilled. They can do like hundreds of bottles a second or something. It's crazy. I love watching that. So that process was to... Um, it's to kind of cope with the yeast to make it settle in the neck. So it, it stores the wine bottles with the neck facing down at an angle. I think it's about 35 mm-hmm. degrees. So previously it had been stored kind of on its fat bum, as it were. Um, <laughs> and then you get the sediment. But this way around, they, they could do like half turns and then quarter turns. It was all very technical and it prevents it from... Uh, spoiling quite so much so she developed this by uh, getting one of her workers to drill holes into a kitchen table and that was the first prototype it was like holes in the kitchen table storing the wine bottles and then they realized they could do this for mass production uh, of riddling she also um, was pretty ballsy in defying napoleon (laughs) there were napoleonic blockades which said you can't export your wine, or at least you can't send it into Russia. But she did! Sent her champagne (laughs) to Russian nobility. Um, And when she passed away, she did hand over her business to kind of um, other male male business partners. But we really see her inspiring like a new generation of women winemakers. Most notably following her is Madame Pomery, Jean Alexandrine Louise Melan, um, who married Alexandre Pomery in 1839. And then Alexandre died in 1860, and she takes over control of Pomery, which I think is another very well known uh, champagne house. Um, she inherited um, a bunch of businesses, so the um, a wool business as well, which she sold off because it was more struggling and she wanted to just concentrate on the champagne. Her main innovation that she brought to the table for champagne was that she purchased 120 limestone and chalk pits that were 12 miles worth under the city of Reims, which had been um, dug out during the Roman occupation of Gaul, as it was then. And so she bought these to use as wine cellars to keep it at a constant temperature so that they um, wouldn't be spoiled and all the other wine houses as soon as she started doing it followed suit and were like yeah that's a great idea why don't we just store stuff in caves um, and cellars but she really leaned into this whole um, Roman Bacchic ideal and commissioned sculptors to create like base reliefs of Bacchus celebrating wine and there were busts everywhere. So it was, it was, you know, quite a spectacle, very beautiful. But then in contrast, <laughs> decided to build Tudor Elizabethan houses on top. <laughs> and that was really because her predominant market were English customers. And um, so decided to kind of honour that by having English houses on top of these sort of Roman caves in France. It's quite a mashup of stuff. And she also... Um, they created for them the first ever uh, her first brute champagne, which is now added sugar. And I think most admirably of all, she was one of the first company directors in France to actually create a retirement plan and health funds for her employees. So looking after the people who work for her. 
Nice. Yeah. Um, next one I want to say about wine person, Hannah Weinberger. Wine and burger. What's not to love? Oh, what a name. Yeah, I could do a burger right now, actually. Um, <laughs> right, Napa Valley we're in now. We're away from France. Napa Valley's wine industry really exploded in the 1960s. Um, you know, quite a while after Prohibition, which is obviously now huge in California. But... She was the first female winemaker in California during the 1880s. And again, um, her husband died. <laughs> he, he, was, he was shot dead in 1882. It was one of their employees that shot him, actually. He was, he was a creep, um, got into an argument over um, their daughter. But I think what I'm saying is, the moral is, if you are a woman and you want to get into winemaking, make sure you've got a husband who then dies. I'm working on it. Yeah, that's, that seems to be the method. <laughs> um, so not only did she take over the winery, but she also then went and filled his role as director of the bank, the local bank. Um, she's like, that's that's hands in many pockets. Must have been useful for funding the winery. Uh, she travelled uh, to France, though. In 1889, she went to the World's Fair in Paris to represent as the only Californian female vintner. Uh, won a silver medal with her with her wines. Uh, so she did very well. Um, there's another one I want to tell you about, which is Sarah Morphew Stephen, who was the first female master of wine, who's British. This is much mm-hmm. more recent. Uh, this was 1970. That she became master of wine. It's a really like rigorous exam where you have to do like written exams, tasting, practical, all sorts of stuff. At the time, it was considered like a real big moment. She got this. She said she had this massive um, press briefing before she was allowed to go and talk to anyone about passing this exam. Now, <laughs> out of three hundred and sixty-nine masters of wine, there are one hundred and thirty-one who are female. So it's, you know, it's reasonably um, evenly split, but it's a very difficult exam. A lot of people don't pass it. You can actually go on their website (laughs) and download past exam papers and sort of see what it's all about. So I got last some of last year's questions, which was, um, these are the essay questions because you have to do (laughs) tasting and all sorts of stuff. Can Cabernet Sauvignon and Riesling be successful in the same location? You'd love this, wouldn't you? I would love to study for this. I would love to study for it. (laughs) Um, Question two. Have supermarkets been a positive or negative force for mainstream consumers around the globe? And third... Ask that post-Covid. Right. (laughs) And third, why and how should wine be stabilised before bottling? Some pretty big questions. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I... I wanted to go through all the past papers and figure stuff out. I, sp- I particularly want to know whether uh, Cabernet and Riesling could be grown in the same place. I suspect the answer is yes, but you have to do certain things. There's <laughs> crazy conditional stuff, yeah. yeah. Who knows? Uh, any more on women of wine? No, no, over to you. No, no. Uh, well, I'm going to talk about beer <laughs> because I know this is mummy juice and wine and gin and whatnot, but I think if I was a, a mummy, my mummy juice would be beer. Mm-hmm. I'm part of that 7% of the female population, according to YouGov, that like beer. Um, and it was quite interesting to read into, actually, because I didn't know that the first ever brewers were actually women. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so way back, kind of as far as when the Egyptians were brewing, um, it was associated with women. It was, you know, it's a, a job that was done in the kitchen. It came under the domestic realm of cooking and with ingredients. So it was therefore the woman's job. Um, it was the women that were doing all the mashing in, brewing, everything. And that carried on right into the 1700s where uh, fermenting beer was still a daily chore for women until they kind of got a bit smart and thought, hang on, we could make some extra money here. <laughs> and so they were still brewing the beer every day, but they then took it to trade and started selling it. And in order to stand out in the marketplace when they were selling their beer, um, they were wearing really tall pointy hats. And the beer was made from cauldrons, or not from cauldrons, in cauldrons. <laughs> so they'd be there in the marketplaces with their big cauldrons of beer and their big pointy hats. Uh, so you can kind of put two, into, two together what happened next. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, women kind of were taken out of the equation. Um, men seized the opportunity by claiming that brewing beer by women was a sign of witchcraft. Um, Which is what I so... mentioned on the last episode about Shakespeare when we talked about Macbeth and the witches brewing exactly. at the beginning of the play. Yep. It's like we knew. <laughs> Come full circle. Um, so yeah, as a result of that, women started to step away from brewing because they didn't want to be tarnished a witch and you know have to deal with what comes with that. <laughs> um, they were still allowed to sell the beer, so the men allowed them to still sell it and serve it, but they weren't allowed to so that's when the whole male domination of the brewing industry started. Um, but thankfully it's not the case nowadays. Lots of fantastic women in the world of brewing. So I wanted to talk about them. Um, one I feel like I had to mention uh, was a girl called Emma Gilland. Um, so she is the director of, um, director of brewing at Marston's. She's been with the company since 1994. She's kind of worked her way up. Um, but the reason why I think she's worth mentioning is because she was the first female head brewer in the company's 179-year history. That's so quite is, a streak to break, isn't it? It is. She is kind of one of the OGs. Um, but then I started reading more and more into kind of head brewers, and there were a lot of them. But there are a lot more women breaking through and just starting their own thing. Um, one of which is a woman called Jen Merrick. Um, so she sounds like somebody that I could definitely be best friends with. Because she just sounds so cool. Um, she was born in Salt Lake City. And originally she was um, baking. She was baking, she was into a coffee roasting. Um, so yeah, all good things. But then she got into brewing. She moved here in 2008 to take up a brewing position in York Brewery. Uh, and then she worked her way up then through um, through different roles. She was head brewer for Meantime and Beaverton. Um, so she gained a bit of a name for herself working at some of the big name breweries. Um, and then in 2018, she decided to launch her own brewery. It's called Earth Station. I don't know if you've heard of it. I do. I believe it's over near, is it Woolwich or somewhere around there? Yeah, yeah, it's North Woolwich. So it's um, it's built on an unused bit of railway um, in Woolwich and it's a community brewery. So 
she is very much into kind of raising funds to support diversity and inclusion programs to help um, the local community. Uh, she gets as many people as she can involved with the brewing process, everything. Um, I was looking on their Instagram um, for International Women's Day just gone. They invited all their mums, grannies, sisters, aunties, friends, whoever in to help them brew um, a special beer for International Women's Day. And they ended up raising £7,000 for charities. Um, Can I just say, so that just... sounds like a much better strategy than yeah. ironic <laughs> labels or vagina beer. Absolutely. And you know why? Because <laughs> a woman did it. <laughs> Um, and it's just brilliant. I think um, I was trying to work out. There's not a heck of a lot of information on the website, but from what I can gather, it's about two and a half years old. Um, the brewery there, mm-hmm. but they're doing big things. Uh, they've got a couple of beers on the website that sound really tasty. One is with uh, I think it's like a brown a brown rice pale ale. They've got an oatmeal pale ale. They all sound delicious, and I'm definitely feeling obliged to try all of them after reading how awesome this generic woman is um the last lady i'd like to speak to about is um she's called sarah john you might not have heard of her but you've definitely heard of her company um boss brewing in swansea uh, i wonder why i've heard so, of them <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they've been going for a number of years and uh, it was a couple of years ago they had some angry letters from Hugo Boss uh, who took offence to their name Boss Brewing. Um, they said it was you know, copyright issues they weren't allowed to sell any beers with the name Boss in it um, and it left this small brewery owned by Sarah John in a lot of hot water because they were, you know, they were having to rebrand stuff, and it's a big cost rebranding things. There were legal fees; it was just enormous. So she started to kind of go a bit public with it to try and get some help, which is when Channel Four got in touch with her and Joe Lysett, um He does like a consumer show where he helps businesses in that scenario. Um, and he fully got on board with helping her to the point where he changed his name to Hugo Boss. Um, and he was really fighting the case. He, uh, ended up doing his own little Hugo Boss catwalk show outside Hugo Boss's kind of main flagship store on Oxford street and just really kind of gave them a taste of their own medicine and just told them to stop bullying small companies. Cause it wasn't just Boss Brewing. There were a bunch of other companies that Boss Brewing, um, like Boss Brewing that Hugo Boss were picking on. Um, so eventually, they, with the help of Joe Lysett, they did settle it out of court. Um, but there's still a lot of caveats in place. Um, one of which is that Boss Brewing are not allowed to sell any merchandise mm-hmm. uh, because their name, Boss. Um, but Sarah's come up with a really cool way of counteracting that. So I've noticed on social media recently, they've said, um, due to legal reasons, we're not allowed to sell any merchandise. So should anybody want to pay over the odds for one of our Boss Brewing cans, we'll throw in a free hat. (laughs) Uh, So they're doing Mm -hmm. a lot of that now. They're they're giving away merchandise when you spend like £15 for a can of beer. (laughs) Yeah. but yeah, I just love her. She's absolutely smashing it. She's been so she'd been home brewing for a long time with her husband, 
um, and she was going and talking to lots of breweries and brewers and generally they were telling her like it's a lot of hard work there's a lot of not a lot of money in it and she said that kind of just spurred me on even more it made me want to really make a success of it because they are success stories um so i think yeah whenever she's met with adversity she just goes at it head on she's been voted one of the kind of top uk entrepreneurs recently um i've got a bit of a girl crush on her but she said even now um there's still issues with the whole you know it's a male-dominated world mm. brewing she's often mistaken as the sales rep rather than yeah. the owner of ross brewing <laughs> um yeah, I love her. Hey, while we're talking uh, feminism and uh, Joe Lysett, didn't you recently pay him for slags? I did. I paid him £50 for slags. Yeah, thought so. <laughs> um, but that was for a charitable cause as well. So uh, Joe Lysett is uh, a comedian extraordinaire but also does a bit of painting and a bit of gardening and he's combined those two loves where he draws lovely paintings of flowers that he dubs slags so i had a lovely picture of some flowers drawn by him with the word slags written all over it and he raised a lot of money that he donates to um the arts and charities in birmingham girl power girl power ain't it you bastards (laughs) you slags (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've got something I wanted to pick up on that you because you mentioned female brewers in ancient Egypt Mm -hmm. and I had something to add to that Um, yes on a general note most of the drinking deities that we will do on another occasion I think once you get kind of pre-Greek once you get into ancient they are women um, mm-hmm. I mean, all the best deities are women once you get into like the really ancient stuff. But um, so I won't tell you about all of them, but I want to tell you about this one because it's relevant because it's the mm-hmm. Egyptian one uh, known as Nebethet or Nephthys in the um, Greek version of the name. Nebethet means lady of the temple. Um, mm-hmm. She was kind of in the core of the Egyptian deity family. So the sister of Isis for example, where um, uh, Isis being the wife of Osiris, and where Isis symbolises birth, she is the death experience. Um, whenever you talk about death gods, people kind of like, oh, they cause death, and they don't cause death. They're, they help you through the process of death. So things like embalming, and mourning, and even mummies. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, that's relevant. It's beer and it's mummies. Um, so in some of the recorded myths, Nebethet is the mother of Anubis as well, that you might know as the kind of uh, dark jackal creature that guides people through into the lands of the dead. Um, but Nebethet is also kind of known as the nursing mother. So rather than the birth mother, the nursing mother, she nursed uh, Horus, who is supposedly the uh, pharaoh, uh, pharaonic god. So for that reason, Nebethet is considered to be the nurse of whatever the reigning pharaoh is at the time. Other goddesses could assume that role as well, but it was it was usually Nebethet. Um, but that doesn't mean she was kind of all like soft and loving and making beer from her vagina. She was also, you know, a, a ferocious uh, deity as well. You know, she would incinerate enemies with her fiery breath. Um, and temperamental and all sorts of things. 
But she was also celebrated a lot because she was the deity of beer. So you would have lots of rites and, and consume lots of beer. And there are recordings where there are like um, reliefs, like sculptures, which depicts Nevethet receiving all these beer offerings from the pharaoh. And in return, supposedly giving her beer goddess powers, she says that the pharaoh won't have a hangover after the celebrations. <laughs> I like but, it. Yeah, exactly. But yes, it's very it's very female driven and like you say um beer production for most of history until really we get to the industrial revolution was a domestic thing. It was considered part mm-hmm. of the home, part of the hearth, you know, it was something that you, you did at home, so it was very much associated with women. But um in Egypt they would uh when pharaohs died, they would put a lot of beer in with them to help sustain them in the afterlife. So beer mm-hmm. was very much part of that kind of mourning process as well as being part of the home and the hearth and um, nurturing and nutrition and all that sort of stuff as well. So they were kind of very connected. I've got mm. uh, one more thing that I was going to uh, mention in connection with mummies and um, Egypt and mummy juice, um, which <laughs> I is... I wonder if it's the same thing I've got. <laughs> oh, is this about the um, two thousand year old sarcophagus that was cracked open in two thousand nineteen? I think it is. <laughs> do you do you want to tell the story then? Um, it's pretty gross. Yeah, it is gross. <laughs> so the two thousand year old sarcophagus that was unearthed um, during a construction dig in Egypt. Um, it was briefly opened. Thankfully, nobody was cursed. <laughs> I think everyone was hoping they'd find uh, treasures inside, but they actually found just kind of three, I think it was, skeletons and a bunch of kind of reddy coloured sewage water. Um, but for some reason, somebody started a change.org petition to let people drink the mummy juice to gain its powers or whatever the hell they thought was going to happen. Um, which is crazy enough, but the, I think the craziest part of this story is that 36,000 people signed this petition. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what the, the petition actually said? It was, it was addressed to the King of Skeletons, and it said, <laughs> We need to drink the red liquid from the cursed dark sarcophagus in the form of some sort of carbonated energy drink so we can assume its powers and finally die. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently somebody had kind of tried to make him see sense and said dude it's just sewage water and he he responded with please stop trying to tell me the skeleton juice is mostly sewage that's impossible everyone knows skeletons cannot poop i mean he's got a point he's got a point I, Let the man drink. <laughs> I see the sense in that. Um, however, a, a professor of microbiology, Rolf Holden, did not see the sense in that. He said, drinking mystery juice is not a smart idea. <laughs> he said, rather than acquiring powers from the dead, the drinker could be exposed to something bad. Quote. <laughs> something bad. Something bad. <laughs> so there are most likely viruses bacteria and other pathogens in that liquid including some bacteria that can form endospores which are extremely tough to kill um spores can survive for thousands and even millions of years so i think what somebody we... said that that's how covid started 
Mummy Juice is responsible for COVID. Is that the point of this episode? <laughs> In all its forms, not just the skeleton sewage water, all its forms, Mummy Juice is responsible. Ah, uh, we had everyone fooled all along. Yeah. This is a conspira- conspiracy theory podcast. And <laughs> now let's talk about the now. lizard people. <laughs> <laughs> the Queen's a lizard. <laughs> the sun's a hologram. <laughs> the earth is flat. All wine has the same terroir. It tastes the same because the earth is flat. It's a lie. There is no such thing as terroir. Chin it. Uh, I'm glad we got there. Can't chin it. There's no gravity. The earth is flat and there's no gravity, and I can't chin it. Right. That throws a spanner in the works, doesn't it? What do we do? Do we need to get like a hose system going, or (laughs) just hose me down with mummy juice? Hose me down with mummy juice and call me Betty. Um, that, on that note, we have concluded our first year of podcasts. <laughs> Can you believe it? Oh, yeah. So, it's been um, good. I think we should do something a bit special for uh, the next one to commemorate one year. I've already just worked out just this second what I'm going to drink. I'm excited. Okay. I'm wondering Stay whether tuned, to give, guys. give some teasers. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what we're going to drink, but it will probably be messy. And we are, we're in some form, we are going to review the past year. I'll give you that Ooh. much. Will there be a horse of money juice? Uh, possibly. <laughs> if we can get it shipped over. Your mummy juice slip and slide. Oh God! And so <laughs> our glass. <laughs> no, <laughs> our glasses have run dry, <laughs> which means it's time to ask a woman to refill them and then get back in the damn kitchen. <laughs> Cheers, everybody! Wench, maybe a sandwich. Wherever I may roam, or land or sea or foam, you can always hear me singing this song. Show me the way to go home.